This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to Get Sharp, a podcast focused on actionable, medium-term macro insights from industry leaders. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with my co-host, Dustin Reed. Dustin, Happy New Year. How were the holidays? Welcome back after the holidays. Thanks very much. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, holidays were great. Hope they were on your side uh, as well and still enjoying. They, they certainly were. Um, I'm excited to get to today's guest, so tell me a little bit about who we have on the podcast today. We have a very well-known macro uh, market strategist, Francois Trehan. Francois is obviously very well-known across macro circles. Uh, globally, he's been doing this for uh, around 25 years. Francois is Canadian, born in Toronto and grew up in Montreal. Francois has his own shop now, Trehan Research, Macro Research, uh, which is excellent. He's also been the equity strategist, U.S. equity strategist at, uh, at UBS, as well as uh, obviously being uh, a partner at Cornerstone Macro, where uh, a lot of people really got to know him. And he's been at a number of other uh, top-tier shops um, before that. So it's a real pleasure to have uh, Francois on the Get Sharp podcast this morning. So, Francois, welcome. Thank you for having me. Maybe we'll turn to the first set of questions here. Francois, maybe kind of just in kind of an overview question. I know the end of end of years and beginning of years usually sees uh, big outlook pieces and and thought leadership and all those sorts of things. I'm sure you are a part of that um, and have been a part of that previously. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're thinking uh, for 24 and in particular maybe the first half of 24? How you see maybe the the economy uh, evolving from here and uh, and then maybe we can kind of dissect that and what it might mean for various markets and asset classes. Of course. Well, I think 2024 is the year where the Fed's rate hikes finally catch up to equity markets and eventually uh, the economy. Uh, So I'm not uh, a big believer in uh, the soft landing hypothesis. Um, I would say it's very normal for people to believe that a soft landing is in the offing at the end of a Fed tightening cycle. That doesn't make it true. We saw the same phenomenon in 2000. We see the same phenomenon um, in 2007. And of course, those were both uh, peers that were followed by uh, recessions. So I think this is going to be one uh, where consensus um, is in left field. I think we're all about to get an education in macro this year. And what do you think is leading that? Is that is that consumption uh, heading lower? And this is obviously a little bit more maybe U.S. focused, at least uh, in not necessarily Canada, although we can obviously wrap in the Canada side too. But uh, is that is that a consumer that is just completely stretched, or uh, is it is it the business fixed investment side as well? Well, it, it's it's all of it. It always starts with with consumption. Um, consumption is 68% of GDP in the U.S. And so there's a very strong tie between consumption and earnings and the S&P. And that's the critical role that labor markets play. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the benchmarks that you want to keep an eye on when the Fed is raising rates to get a sense of what lies ahead is housing. There's a famous paper by um, a UCLA professor named Ed Lemer. 
entitled Housing is the Business Cycle. And I'll paraphrase here a bit, but he shows that housing slows systematically before the year before a recession. And he basically covers every cycle post uh, World War II. And so we've already seen that. Uh, there's the slope of the yield curve, of course. There's a lot of uh, red flags as we go into 2024, but it is typically consumption that starts to weaken, and then everything else, um, you know, follows suit. Is this a like a second half of 24 hard landing, or can it happen? Can it happen before then? That's a million dollar question, to be perfectly honest. Um, so typically, I will, I'll answer that two different ways. Um, if you look at the relationship between interest rates and GDP growth, there's about a two-year lag between the change in rates and the impact on the economy. I know there's a big debate about lead lags, but that relationship has been stable since the late 1930s. And there's always a debate, by the way, about lead lags between policy and the economy. And yet at the end of the day, you know, can it happen a quarter earlier, a quarter later? Of course, but the trends mm-hmm. are uh, are pretty set. So we saw market rates start to rise in late January 2022. We're about to hit that anniversary. I would say that it was a little later that they really went up precipitously. Uh, so if I had to handicap things, I would say the second quarter is uh, the first quarter based on rates where you should expect the economy to be in real trouble. Um, And then the second way to answer that is to look at how the equity market's doing. Equities usually discount GDP by about six months. Mm -hmm. Given the strength, given how we ended the year, I would say that that uh, would push that story out a quarter and argue that Q3 is probably where the real problems begin. So somewhere in that time frame, it's going to start to feel very different. Okay. And then yield curve inversion and then time of yield curve inversion measured in days or months, I think is a metric that you like to look at uh, from time to time. What What is that telling you in terms of, uh, I mean, maybe it's an obvious answer, but what is that telling you in terms of you know, the outlook for the economy later this year? Yeah. So I have about a dozen different indicators that you know I've accumulated over the course of my career that I look at to try to gauge the type of slowdown that we're staring at. So soft landing versus recession. In this one, they're pretty unanimous. So I don't feel like this is a uh, difficult call. And the yield curve, of course, is uh, is one of those. Uh, so the last eight inversions in the yield curve were followed by a recession. So it does have a great historical track record over the last 50 odd years. Um, I would say that I've observed this in my career, the yield curve inverts and people come up with reasons why it might not work this time around. And so there was a debate uh, in that regard last year that, you know, Mm -hmm. to my ears sounded very familiar. So what academia tells us is that the depth of inversion doesn't really tell you anything. You know, the yield curve was pretty scary. At one point last year, it did comp to what we saw in the early 80s under Paul Volcker. Mm-hmm. Um, what those same studies will show you is that the length of inversion does uh, give you a sense of what lies ahead. Now, there's a correlation between the length of time the yield curve is inverted and mm-hmm. the length of the eventual recession that follows. So mm-hmm. that particular study was done with the 10-year to three-month yield curve. That version's been inverted for 16 months. And so if you put that in a historical context, right now it would guide you to a recession that lasts about a year, something like that. And the story is not over, of course, because the yield curve is still inverted. 
Francois, uh, how does the Fed react uh, in this scenario? Like what happens to, to rates and, and Fed overall? Well, um, let me start by giving you the disclaimer that the Fed's not very good at forecasting. And uh, don't take my word for it. The San Francisco Fed published a study back in 2017 that examined the Fed's forecasting record across history and concluded they weren't very good at it. So this is not uh, just my observation. Uh, so that's why these um, plateaus, you know, the period between that last rate hike and that first rate cut tend to be pretty short historically. There's only one that I can point to that lasted more than a year, and that's the one leading up to the global financial crises. And I think if the Fed could redo that one, they would have started cutting rates uh, a lot a lot sooner. Uh, so they're not very good at forecasting, which helps explain why they go from being concerned about the economy being too hot to concerned about the economy losing steam uh, too quickly. Uh, so under this scenario, you know, at the end of the day, the unemployment rate is a very critical component into the Fed's reaction function, as is core inflation. And the two go hand in hand because tight labor markets lead to higher wage growth, which pushes up uh, core inflation and vice versa. And the unemployment rate works with a long lag, too. And so it starts to go up sustainably this year. And that's typically the trigger point for the Fed to change its tune. And so I don't think it's wrong for the market to expect rate cuts this year. You know, I feel like in December at one point, we we're pricing in six to seven rate cuts. And I did ask myself, well, how is that consistent with a soft landing? That seems like that's a slowdown that's going to be, you know, somewhat more precipitous. So somewhat more in line with what I think uh, lies ahead. And so I think the Fed's going to embark on a uh, significant Fed easing cycle that we'll probably see eventually an end to uh, quantitative tightening and that we'll see the Fed funds rate much lower. And that's in response to inflation that keeps trending lower and the unemployment rate that all of a sudden starts to perk higher. First of all, where do you think that leaves earnings? Maybe we'll use S&P just as kind of the U.S. or global benchmark. But how do you see within that environment, the corporate earnings cycle playing out, maybe not only in 24, but also maybe for for 25? Significantly lower is, uh, is the short answer. Um, and that's the lifeblood of equities at the end of the day. You know, when you yeah. look at the four major bear markets we've had in the last 30 odd years, they all occurred uh, in the midst of a decline in earnings, the four major declines in earnings that we've seen. And so the moment that earnings expectations, what people call forward earnings, start to move lower, it doesn't really matter what the Fed does for what's directly in front of you. PEs, when earnings start to fall, no longer respond to lower rates. So the Fed cutting doesn't basically fuel PEs higher. That only works as long as earnings are growing. And that's how you get these Fed relief rallies. Uh, so earnings and the economy are basically the same thing. You know, I often, uh, well, in the last year, I've often published this chart of industrial production retail sales, and S&P forward earnings growth. And mm -hmm. I remove the scales and the legend, and I challenge people to tell me which line is which because they all look exactly the same, and they're all coincident with GDP, of course. And so in a world where the economy starts to slow, by the way, industrial production is already in negative territory. Retail sales, um, I suspect, will be there shortly. 
mm-hmm. um, and earnings growth will uh, will follow. Um, you know, that's a uh, that basically is the definition of what brings about a bear market in the equity market. And stock prices get there typically about three months before earnings do. Okay. And are you running with an S&P target for maybe mid-24 or late-24 at this point, given, given your views? Yeah. The hard part uh, when it comes to earnings, when you're looking at forward earnings, is that there's a sentiment component to them. Huh. And we know this because we know that at the peak of a cycle, analysts tend to extrapolate. That's why when mm-hmm. conditions change, initially earnings come down pretty quickly, but that's really just removing this extrapolation uh, from uh, the story. Um, but then as the economy loses momentum, analysts do the exact same thing at the bottom. And so forecasting forward earnings is pretty difficult because that sentiment part is always uh, hard to know. Uh, what I do know is that in my mind, the odds of a soft landing are you know, very, very small. Nothing's impossible, but it's very difficult to get there. You have to say, you have to do, you have to get a lot of firsts and say it's different this time, many, many times to, you know, get to a soft landing scenario. Um, So a scenario where we have a mild recession, so where GDP, you know, ends up being down about 2% or something like that, um, is one where earnings come down pretty significantly. And that's the trouble with slowdowns is, you know, they're a bit of a discovery process. Um, You know, the economy slows, it feels like things are under control, and the slower growth gets, the more pressure you put on the system, the likelier it is that something breaks. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the hard part to know. What I know is that earnings are going to be significantly lower than uh, consensus, um, and I would say that, uh, you know, I don't have an exact uh, price target for this year, but in my mind, it's pretty clear that we're going to see a three handle on the S&P before we see a five handle. And I think hmm. before this story is over, I'm someone that would not rule out a two handle on the S&P. I think that that is possible, um, you know, in terms of what lies ahead. Wow. Okay. Maybe I'll circle back to uh, talk a little bit about employment and your views on employment. Clearly, you're you're th- in the camp that unemployment's going up and that uh, it'll be a challenging uh, year. But maybe give me a sense for how dramatic you think that might be. Obviously, we're coming off very very strong employment uh, numbers for the past several months. So maybe comments on that. Yeah, sure. So the unemployment rate is um, is a coincident, the lagging indicator of the business cycle, and so it follows changes in interest rates. So where you see changes coming first is going to be in leading indicators of employment. And, um, you know, there's a lot of those to, uh, to choose from. Uh, the ones that are the most consistent, in my opinion, historically, uh, temp agency payrolls is a very good one. That leads um, employment by, call it six to 12 months. Historically, it's been plunging for uh, I think since last March now. And so that's one that's telling you the world is about to change. And there's a long list. The The one series that everybody likes to look at is initial jobless claims. And that's not nearly as uh, consistent historically. So it's one that has, you know, wiggles that don't necessarily move in the right direction for a while. So for me, that's not uh, critical. Uh, what I do know is that when payrolls start to move lower, payrolls and earnings, by the way, if you plot them on the same chart, that's another one of those relationships that's very, very difficult to tell apart. 
And again, that just goes back to the makeup of U.S. GDP that is 68% consumption, you know, where employment plays a, uh, a critical role. Uh, so if you look at the math historically between real GDP growth and the unemployment rate, I was talking about a mild recession, so a world where GDP growth goes down about 2%. Um, that's one that pushes the unemployment rate by higher by about two points. And to me, if, uh, if we get that outcome, I think we'd be in a really good place. You know, again, when you have this much tightening in the pipeline, you have to think about what can go wrong. That's the likeliest uh, scenario for what lies ahead. I would say, by the way, that when you have easing in the pipeline, you have to change your mindset to think about what can go right. And so I, I definitely have a uh, mindset this year that's trying to get me to think about what goes wrong. I can tell you that, you know, having worked as um, I am an economist by training, but, um, you know, I, I, my specialization was econometrics. And I worked as an econometrician for uh, a couple of years before I started publishing macro research. And where GDP forecasting models make their biggest errors is always in recessions. Um, and that's because what you can't model is a financial crisis. So if you're only looking at the relationship between interest rates and the unemployment rate going into the financial crises, interest rates would tell you that the unemployment rate should have peaked somewhere around six or six and a half percent, and then ended up above 10. And so again, because that's the part that you can't model. What you do know is that the slower growth is and the more broad-based it is around the world, the greater the likelihood of some sort of financial accident. And so you have to think about that in the back of your mind. Um, so I would say as of now, to me, a 6% unemployment rate is almost a given and uh, it's all upside from there. On that thread, which I think is really, really interesting, I, I'm spending a lot of time on real rates, not only in the U.S., but globally, but in, for the case of this this conversation, I guess, at least to start, is you know in the U.S. And, and the Fed. And obviously looking at the pretty big deceleration in core PCE over the last five, six, seven, eight months. How do you think about real rates and where kind of the, the equilibrium is between um, accommodation and restriction? And how do you think the Fed's looking at it now, given what we've been through over the last three, four years, which have obviously been a challenging period of time? That's, that's not an easy one to, to answer. I would say the second part of your question is really much more important than what I think. Uh, mm. It's how the Fed is, um, is thinking about it. Yeah, that's what I always say too. So yeah. I <laughs> The reason that the Fed uh, historically tends to over-tighten and over-ease is largely because they follow lagging indicators of the business cycle. So again, the two critical variables they look at is core inflation and the unemployment rate. Neither or are uh, you know, leading indicators. Um, in the conference board, you know, the conference board has their leading economic index. They also have a coincident index. You don't hear about that one all that often. And uh -huh. they actually have a lagging economic index. And until the last two years, I've never written about the lagging index because nobody really cares about it. Um, but in it, you will find two very important series for the cycle we've just experienced. You'll find labor costs or basically wage inflation and services CPI, which is 75% of core inflation. Uh -huh. And so the Fed basically follows these lagging series, and they set policy based on them. 
And so they over tighten, they over ease. And the end result is that we end up with a lot more volatility in the business cycle than uh, we should have. In my experience, until Chairman Powell came along, um, the Fed was a lot easier to follow. I would say that, um, you know, over the course of my career, I started with Greenspan, then uh, Bernanke, and eventually Yellen. They all followed um, something close to the Taylor rule. And the Taylor rule is just this formula that tries to basically approximate what the Fed funds rate should be. And the two big components in it are, you know, largely derived from the unemployment rate and uh, core inflation. Um, you know, the issue with Chairman Powell is that he deviated from that completely in 2021 with inflation started moving higher. Um, and so he's, you know, from a completely different mold. Um, and uh -huh. I, I, I have yet to still fully grasp his framework. You know, I, I find that, um, you know, he went very quickly from saying inflation is not a problem to a year later saying I'm a disciple of Paul Volcker. And I've heard him uh, say that uh, or saw it in writing five times. And, you know, if you were a disciple of Paul Volcker, you would have raised rates in the spring of 2021 when inflation started breaking higher. Uh, so I, I bring that up to say that um, he's brought up real rates uh, a few times, but it's very difficult to decipher how he's looking at it because there's just no consistency in any framework from the Fed. Uh -huh. um, and I would say uh, the recent pivot is a great example of that. You know, we need to raise rates more to we're going to cut rates probably three times next year. You know, and all that happened in the span of 12 days. Those two quotes. Great context. We've really uh, spent the bulk of this conversation talking about uh, U.S. and rightfully so, obviously, a big part of the global economy. As you look outside of the U.S., are there any opportunities or, or uh, any equity markets that you think will withstand this potential uh, downturn? Or is your prediction that uh, sort of all uh, economies are going to come off together? Yeah, I think this is a, a hard one because we're, we're basically all the major economies are in the same boat. You know, everybody is dealing with the after effects of higher inflation and or higher rates. And um, everybody's got significant deficits and a lot of debt. So in prior downturns, um, you know, when you think back to the GFC, for instance, there was a big story taking place elsewhere in the world, and that was the investment boom in China. Right. And the makeup of the S&P in those years was very different than it is today. You know, it was far more exposed to, um, you know, to, to what was happening in China than uh, the market we have today. But that provided an offset, if you will, or a buffer for, uh, for the economy. Um, you know, the other buffer that I can think of historically beyond, you know, another economy growing rapidly, which I can't find today, um, is fiscal policy. And, you know, we've never gone into a slowdown in the U.S. with this wide of a deficit before. So I do wonder if we've reached the limits of what we can accomplish with fiscal policy. Hmm. Uh, so to answer your question, you know, when you look at Europe, U.K., uh, Japan and China, you know, in the U.S. Uh, together, everybody's got tightening in the pipeline and or major issues. Um, and the rest of the world is largely trade dependent and tends to follow trends in those economies. And so we're just going to pull down emerging markets with that 
and unfortunately other export-oriented economies like the Canada's and Australia's of the world, basically. So I think this is going to be a true global downturn, which has its own unique risks, you know, built into it. And when you look at that global economic downturn, what do you think about? Like, how do you look at the yield curve from here? Is that a is that a uh, a bull steepener, which a lot of people are looking at, and then maybe subsequently, uh, what do you think it means for FX and in particular the U.S. dollar? I'll um, answer that one in reverse. Sure. Um, so the U.S. dollar is the safe haven uh, currency in a global downturn. And that relationship's a lot more simple than people think it is. In my experience, the dollar is um, one of the biggest misconceptions with uh, investors. Um, if you look at the makeup of the trade-weighted dollar, and you take uh-huh. the weight of the Canadian dollar, the Mexican peso, and the Korean won, those three, those are three very export-oriented economies that depend on global growth, basically. Uh-huh. Well, those three currencies alone account for about 30% of the weight in the U.S. dollar. In a global downturn, there's less demand for Canadian goods, Mexican goods, South Korean goods, and the list goes on. And when you tally the weight of all these trade-sensitive currencies, they account for almost two-thirds of the trade-weighted dollar. So the dollar goes up because there's just less demand for goods from export-oriented countries. So I'm very bullish the U.S. dollar. Um Needless to say, the inverse applies to the Canadian dollar, which I view as mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a very globally dependent currency. Um, and you know, since I view this as a global downturn, to me, those are all currencies that have downside to them. So the dollar, I'm very bullish on. As to what happens to bond yields, um, I do like bonds. I got on that trade a little early in late September. October mm-hmm. was a little painful. The first three weeks when bond yields went up a lot. Um, <laughs> but, you know, my understanding was that the Fed was basically uh, done raising rates. They just hadn't acknowledged it yet. And that change happened a lot more quickly than um, than I thought it would. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the normal reaction from here um, would be um, uh, a bull steepener. That's what you see in the wake of Every yep. tightening cycle, the only exception I can find is 97, and I think that was only one or two uh, rate hikes, and so that was you know minuscule. I think bonds and the dollar are very uh, appealing, and in my experience, in every cycle, there's a point where you know investors get spooked and risk aversion kicks in, extreme risk aversion, and that's when people uh-huh. pile into bonds, but it's also because a lot of banks all of a sudden um, will tell their clients that they can no longer accept collateral that isn't treasuries, right. you know, and so people have to sell mortgage-backed securities, you know, at the same time as everybody else, and that's when spreads really blow out, and um, you know, when you make a lot of money in the defensive assets. Uh, so I like bonds uh, a lot. I would say that applies uh, to Canada as well, mm-hmm. um, but I think the difference is the dollar will be very strong. The Canadian dollar is going to be under pressure this year like most trade-sensitive currencies around the world. Does your concern over fiscal and the, maybe the supply amount of, of paper in the market, does that concern you for the long end of the curve when you're looking at kind of these bull steepeners and maybe you know, even though you still kind of like you know duration all bonds? Is that, is that a factor for you? I would say that it's not the dominating one, mm-hmm. but it is the first time in my career that I have to think about that. Yes, and yeah. I'm more concerned about you know the level of debt in the U.S. is comping to peak World War II levels. 
So yeah. we're not that far in the U.S. from saying we have more debt as a percentage of GDP than we've ever had in the history of the country. Right. And that's a very different position than where we were 20 years ago, you know, when the Bush administration did an insane amount of fiscal stimulus. But when your debt to GDP ratio is 36 percent, you can afford to do that. Um, and I remember Vice President Cheney at the time used to say deficits don't matter. Yeah. I would argue they always matter. But again, uh-huh. you can you can afford to think that when uh, your debt to GDP you know ratio is so low. And yeah. the U.S. is now above uh, 100%. And so it's a different world. I'm not worried about uh, a fiscal crisis um, or, you know, having a negative impact on bond yields as much as I am about the uh, what I think will be the inability of the government to respond to um, a recession. This might just yeah. be the first time we go into recession where there is no fiscal stimulus. You know, or nothing of uh, of size. Um, yeah. the, the one thing that um, does linger in the back of my mind, if you remember a year year and a half ago, new prime minister in the UK mm. comes in, oh, yeah. announces yep. uh, tax cuts, and mm-hmm. the bond market basically said no. Yeah. Um, you know, I've never seen that in a major developed economy before, mm-hmm. and so that does um, make things uncomfortable. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Yeah, we spent a lot of time on that uh, on our team um, when that happened. That was actually a really, really interesting event. Maybe kind of actually one last question from me that kind of ties in the politics side. Early 24, probably can't entirely let you go without uh, asking you not necessarily the outcome of the U.S. election, but what do you think the U.S. election means for investors? And, and are there any implications out there that you think people should be thinking about that may not be totally consensus or mainstream? Um, yeah, so there's a lot of people talking about the presidential cycle and how this mm-hmm. is typically a friendly year for stocks, um, it, and that's been true historically, but it's been true because it's usually a year where the government throws a lot of money at the economy, and that's the part that is right. missing Different. this time around. Mm-hmm. Um, here's one thing I can tell you about uh, you know, a, a different way of thinking about the presidential cycle. Your odds of um, getting elected – have a lot to do with uh, Fed policy. And so, and I'll give you two extreme examples. The first Bush administration um, comes in after a um, Fed tightening cycle. And so Bush, uh, same thing for Reagan, actually, um, comes into office and irrespective of your policies, Reagan was talking about deregulation, cut taxes, big increases in Uh, military spending. And his first year in office is still a bear market and a recession because the Fed was raising rates. The same thing happens for Bush. Now, President Obama gets inaugurated late January 2009. And the markets start taking off uh, in March. And people used to call that the Obama rally. And I would argue it had nothing to do with Obama. It had to do with decisions that were made at the Fed, you know, a year plus earlier. And it was the lagged effects of stimulus in the pipeline that ultimately turned things around. Hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, this is not an opinion on what may or may not happen this year. Uh-huh. Um, but when you're, you know, trying to get reelected after one of the most aggressive Fed tightening cycles in decades, you know, I would say that history is uh, against you. 
maybe one more for me, uh, Francois. Um, so let's say uh, it's uh, January of 2025 and we have you back on the podcast and we're looking back. Uh, markets are up uh, 10%. Um, and things have gone completely opposite to what you expected. Maybe employment's uh, low, maybe rates have uh, are unchanged or something along those lines. Tell me what has to line up for that to be the case. Like, How highly convicted are you in this uh, view? I would say I have extreme conviction. You know, I think that people right now are, it's the rally in the market that has convinced people that it's a soft landing. It's not based on you know, some change. So from last year, where everybody thought it was a recession to now, everybody thinks it's a soft landing. When I challenge people to tell me what's changed in their economic framework to explain it, there's no answer. It's really just the stock market and the sentiment effect hmm. that it's had on people. By the way, this is how people felt in the summer of 08. You know, the market rebounds uh, in the second quarter of 08, and it convinced everybody that it was a soft landing. Um, even Bernanke, I remember, used to say, you know, the economy is clearly healing, the credit issues are behind us, et cetera, right before things were about to fall apart. And so, um, you know, for the market to go up 10% this year, um, you need earnings to hold up. You know, like people love to point to the Fed raising rates in the right. mid-90s and the market not moving lower. But again, that was a world where earnings never declined. You know, there's 13 Fed tightening cycles back to the 1950s. That's the one where we did not see a correction in earnings. But right now, that's the one that people are pointing to, to justify being bullish this year. Look, rates are going to go down. That's going to juice PEs. And people forget that that only works as long as earnings are, uh, are growing. And so if you can come up with a scenario that has earnings moving higher, then you should be bullish. I don't see anything that argues in favor of that, mm. you know, and for me, you know, I obviously look at a lot of relationship and the breadth of the indicators I look at is what drives my confidence in, uh, in a call. And so um, I think the markets are going to be very, very weak this year. Again, a function of the fact that we had a very aggressive Fed tightening cycle and all of that works with a lag irrespective of how people feel about that lag. It's been consistent for almost a century now. Um, and so it, it, I'd be very surprised if the market is up 10% next year, but I'm delighted to join the podcast a year from now. Perfect. And we can review how things work. <laughs> Perfect. That would be great. Maybe with that, we'll uh, say thank you very, very much for your time today, Francois. I know, I know you're busy. First week of the year is always very busy with clients and getting out on the road and new publications and uh, new thought leadership. So thank you for your time. Your thoughts are very valued. And uh, I know our, our clients and our investors and anybody else on the web who's listening to this podcast will very much appreciate your views. So thanks for your time and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Yeah, thanks, Francois. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Justin, really interesting conversation uh, with Francois. Obviously, uh, he's coming in the year uh, exceptionally bearish. Do you share his view? A fascinating conversation. Francois always has great insights and uh, and thought leadership on on macro, uh, on equities generally in particular, but all asset classes. So it's always a pleasure hearing from him. I, you know, myself, I'm probably not as bearish as he is on, I would say, either kind of markets, asset classes, or the economy. Um, 
you know, I'm, I am on the global investment committee here at McKenzie. And, you know, actually, we recently upgraded our equity uh, fixed income asset allocation balance or mix to, to neutral for both. So we would be probably slightly slightly opposite of Francois on, on particularly on, on the equity side. I mean, from right. what I'm listening to in, in our conversation with Francois, it's very... Uh, very dire on the unemployment rate, very dire, therefore, on the economy, and therefore, very dire on uh, on earnings. And I mean, I guess where I may be slightly different is I think the Fed's going to be very, very proactive on, on this cycle. I think things changed in 2020. The playbook is different. And you and I have talked about this a few times on, on various podcasts. I think the Fed's reaction function is different now than 2020. It's going to be very, very aggressive. And so it's this idea of, oh, okay, growth's going, growth is slowing, so the Fed needs to cut rates. And I'm kind of looking at it as, well, let's cut rates before growth slows. And maybe the Fed cut rate cuts rates and it's too late. Um, right. Growth slows regardless because, to Francois's point, we've had a very significant rise in interest rates and the policy rates, not only in the U.S., but here domestically in Canada and globally as well. And therefore, there, you'll see kind of the inverse in the activity data on the economic side. So you see a spike higher in policy rate, you see a spike lower in economic activity. And that might happen, but I think the there's an implicit assumption there where that whereby the reaction function is around the same time. And if the reaction function by policymakers, in this particular case, the Fed, is quicker, which is kind of my my MO here from kind of the things changed after 2020, then maybe that spike lower in economic activity doesn't necessarily happen, or maybe the spike is more shallow, downside right. spike is more shallow. And if that's true, then maybe earnings aren't necessarily going to take uh, as big a as big a loss or as big a hit as as Francois might be saying. So therefore, you know, equity valuations may not move down into the you know three handle as he said, or maybe even you know maybe even more. Um, so I think that's probably how I'm I'm looking at it. I mean, to state the obvious, at least as we sit here today, and uh, it's it's a day before the uh, the next the next NFP, but you know, U.S. unemployment is still running unemployment rate still below four percent, and that's. Right. That's a pretty tight labor market. Now, I'm also saying and seeing that there's cracks in the labor market, and I'm I'm on that train, but I'm not expecting six percent in 12 months. I mean, I guess I guess anything's possible, and that could happen. But you would have to see a very very significant deterioration in the labor market and the job market for for that to happen. I mean, that's a, that's that's gapping type stuff, and. Although possible, if the Fed is going to be in from a policy perspective, as well as maybe even uh, a program perspective, it's tough to, for me, it's tough to see that, it's tough to see that happening. But I think Francois' insights are always very, very important. Yep. Wonderful uh, context, Dustin. Uh, and I look forward to that podcast early 2025, where we figure out who's, who's right. So <laughs> We shall see. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. 
forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.